In Judaism, it's called the Yetzer Hara, the Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination and the evil inclination. And it's funny because they say, okay, the good inclination is good, the evil inclination is very good. Because there's this idea that that the Yetzer Hara, that dark side of us, is the side that fights for change, that fights for what we believe in. It's like the, the survivor, the one that isn't just fine with being comfortable. Welcome to Getting Through. I'm Andrea Sonnenberg. In this episode, I'm speaking with Asia. She's dependable, the kind of person you can count on for a ride to the airport. She'll probably even show up early. But Asia has a wilder aspect to her personality that used to get the best of her. What struck me most is Asia's ability to accept all sides of herself. She hasn't turned away from the difficult parts. Instead, she's worked very hard to turn the difficult parts into strengths. Today, Asia is studying to be a therapist. She works with young people who are struggling with mental health issues, just as she does. She feels that what she has been through uniquely positions her to help others. For Asia, challenges started when she was about nine years old. I developed really, really bad non-functioning OCD around third grade um, to where my parents used to joke they liked and it was my night to do the dishes because the kitchen would be immaculate until they realized that I literally wasn't getting my homework done because I was just, you know, scrubbing in the kitchen for hours. So I was taken to see a psychiatrist and put on meds. The relationship that I developed with therapy early on became this very much if I say and say and say the right things, present the right way, um, things are going to be fine. But if I say the wrong thing, something's going to be taken away. It's going to be read as I'm in a bad state of mind. I, I became very calculated. Um, I was so worried about saying the wrong thing um, and, you know, having consequences that I, I it's almost like I had to. For a long time, I don't even think I knew how to be authentically me. So much of it was either putting on the act that I had to present in therapy or with my parents. And then um, around, I would say, ninth grade was when this kind of double life started to surface. In high school, Asia was taking medication for her OCD and ADHD. She felt like she was living a kind of double life. She would be one type of person around her parents and at school and another person letting loose on the weekends. She calls this alter ego. Lila Black. Lila Black. It was the name on my first fake ID. It was like the name of, it was, Lila Black was everything that Asia was not allowed to be. Asia was this anxious, scared, OCD kind of perfect kid and in therapy and with her parents and everything like that. And, um, you know, I struggled socially and, and all that kind of stuff. And Lila Black got to be this badass, didn't care, does what she wants, you know, party girl. That was my powerful alter ego where Asia just felt weak. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell me more about Lila Black and, and where she took you. Throughout high school, um, as I got older and older, I think 10th, 11th, 12th grade, that was where the split became even more apparent. After graduating high school, Asia left home for college. And when I went to school, my focus was not, oh, great, I'm going to go better my education. It's, oh, great, I don't have to maintain this facade. I can go be full-blown Lila Black, dark side, bad girl, you know, popular girl, whatever. And um, I, I, I literally was not at all interested in school. That was when um, things started to get pretty, pretty out of control. Um, I was really big into smoking weed. And it was weird, but with how much um, Adderall I was taking at the time, if I didn't smoke weed, it was like I, I was basically in mania. 
Um, I remember that there'd be days where I wouldn't smoke weed. I'd take my meds as prescribed. I never had a need to abuse them because of how much I was taking. And I would just feel absolutely manic. And just the anxiety would be through the roof. Honestly, looking back, I don't even know if I have ADHD or if I ever did. I just had been medicated for for so like for so long that um, I never questioned it. But weed became an everyday thing for me. That was the only way I knew how to function without just being this maniac. And of course, drinking and partying and you know exploring my sexuality, all that kind of stuff. Towards the end of the year, I ended up getting into a really bad car accident. Um, and that was kind of where a bunch of the lies started to unravel. That was where my parents started to to discover things that I'd been lying about. And I think at a certain point they were like, oh my God, we don't even know who we're dealing with right now. It was like the, the whole facade, the whole double life started to crumble. And when I got back from school that year, they basically were like, Hey, look, um, we're concerned about you. We don't even really know what we're dealing with. Um, we're not going to be sending you back to school this year. And your options are basically go get help. They actually wanted me to go to Beit at that time. I was 18. Um, go get help or go figure it out. And at that point, Lila Black had kind of gathered this strength and she was like, okay, I don't need you. And I went off on my own and I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado, where, um, I lived and worked at a ski resort, which is just party central. And at that point, the feeling of like needing to run uh, from my feelings, run from sadness, run from feeling like, like I missed my family, run from feeling small, run from feeling powerless. That's where it started to get much, um, much stronger. And that's where I started to really use a lot more. Um, I was really, really into psychedelics at the time, drinking Coke, acid, mushrooms. It was like, I would just be like, I'm so connected. Oh my God, everything's great. Um, and after about a year of that, I, I was sitting at a table and I, I, you know, with a couple people that I used to hang out with, one of them was like a 50 year old guy. And he was like, oh yeah, I remember I, I came out here when I was your age and he's still, you know, 30 plus years later doing the exact same thing. So at that point I actually called my parents and I was like, Hey, what was that you were saying about Beit Teshuva? So when I was 20, I moved myself from Colorado to Beit Teshuva for the first time. Beit Teshuva is a residential treatment center rooted in the spiritual principles of Judaism. And I didn't really think I was a drug addict quite yet. I just thought I needed a change of direction, you know, or like some recentering. And I started to kind of reestablish a relationship with my parents. But um, still at that point, it so much of it felt like, okay, 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 we're not going to be bad anymore. We're not going to be bad. Lila Black is gone. All this is gone. Everything's good. Everything's good. And if I'm really good and if everything goes really well with my parents or something like that, they're going to send me back to school and I can do what I'm supposed to do with my life and whatever. So it was still just this kind of, anxious like denial of a part of me that was so real like this little dark part that isn't even necessarily bad it's just this part of me that I felt like I couldn't express um and at Beit Teshuvah it became okay how do I talk the talk in therapy how do I you know make it sound like everything's going well and oh blah 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 it was it was all felt like a little bit of an act and it wasn't even on purpose I literally did not know how to be authentic in those kind of settings after about nine months, Asia left Beit Teshuva and stopped going to treatment altogether. She found full-time work as a nanny, and while part of her loved caring for a baby, the other part of her felt lonely. After a couple months, I felt like, just, what am I doing with my life? I mean, I was so isolated. I, I would have these forced dinners with my parents where it was like, oh, everything's great, and this is great, and like with the idea that in a couple months when I showed them I was doing well, I'd ask them to help me go back to school because that's what I was supposed to do. But after about six months of working with this family, 
I, it was like this little dark part, this little Lila Black in me was just screaming to be let out. And I started selling Coke on the weekends, not even because I needed the money, but because I needed like the fire in my life. I mean, it was like, okay, you've been living this little anxious vanilla life for too long. Let me out a little bit. Let me breathe on the weekends. Um, and I remember it was at about the year mark that I was working for this family. Um, I just, I could, I was reaching my limit. I was so depressed. I was, I was starting to kind of drink and use a little bit more regularly. I tried meth for the first time um, with the people that I used to buy Coke from. And I remember that feeling of when I did, when I did meth for the first time, it was like this, oh my God, I have discovered what it was that I was put on this earth to do. It was just this like, click. I mean, it's really freaky, but it's like, I didn't even question it. I was like, sad thinking about my life and what I was like before I discovered this drug that was made for me. Um, and things just went downhill really, really fast. I ended up losing my job. I ended up, um, kind of, my family knew it was garbage. She's like, all right, I'm, don't worry. I'm not going to bother you guys. I'm just going to go do drugs and this is who I'm going to be now. Um, and that, uh, started my, um, I guess it was about seven months before I first got arrested. Um, I was using meth. I was using heroin to, mostly to balance out the meth. I got um, really interested in like fraud and identity theft and all that kind of stuff. And I became this kind of career criminal drug addict from a nanny, from somebody that would have dinner with her family every week trying to like make things right to all of a sudden it was like, okay, nope, this isn't going to work anymore. It was like that dark side had just exploded. Lila had just been like, all right, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I ended up. Um, getting arrested several times. I was in and out of jail for fraud, identity theft, sales, possession. Um, and each time I went to jail, it was almost like, once again, my life was in complete imbalance. Instead of, you know, stuffing this Lila Black part of me in the closet and saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry. It was, okay, we're just going to do everything that Asia was not allowed to do. Asia's not here. That innocent, that anxious, that OCD girl, like she's not here anymore. It's just all... Lila. It's all this excitement, this power. Um, and my, I think my real, my using was about two years or about a year and a half, but it was a lot of it was in and out of jail. And finally I got arrested and charged with something bigger. And I was looking at a lot of time in prison. Can you tell us what it was like in jail, especially with someone that's struggling with issues that you were struggling with? Every time I went to jail, that was where I would have to kick heroin. Um, and Instead of using jail as a, okay, I should probably learn my lesson, um, I met other criminals. I networked. Um, there were a lot of drugs in jail. You could stay high if you wanted to. Um, and this little kind of warped thinking I had where I, I the longest time I had done in, in this period before I got arrested for the, the big charge um, was three months. And I was getting high on and off in that three months. I didn't really have enough time to kind of even out um, to think clearly. And instead it was almost like, oh, this is just part of the thug life, you know, like whatever, this is who I am now. I'm tough. Oh, wow. Now I have street cred. I've been to jail. The scariest thing about that was I was still so warped in the head that I was like, oh yeah, that's just what gangsters do. Like it was just this kind of like, I mean, I was out of my mind. Um, and I ended up getting charged with, um, it was fraud, identity theft, sales, the usuals, and then um, basically first-degree burglary um, with a violent enhancement because people were home. 
So it wasn't quite like a home invasion charge, but it was, um, it was a, it was not a good thing to be charged with. Basically, um, I ended up getting two years and eight months, sentenced to two years and eight months in prison. The first month that I was there, I was kind of in the mix. I was like doing drugs. I was, you know, like getting into relationships. I was very much in the, in the drama of prison life. And, um, I think it was with my first, my first bunkie, um, I basically got so humbled. Um, I, I, I got into a fight with my first bunkie and let's just say I super, super lost. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it was like, there were drugs involved, um, with the fight. And I, I think it was like, I basically got the sense knocked out of me and I was sitting alone in a cell, um, right after, literally, literally, like, literally, literally, uh-huh. let's just say, literally, I got the shit knocked out of me, like literally. Right. <laughs> right. Um, right. and I remember I was like in a daze, I was sitting alone in a cell and it hit me like, oh my God, the thug life is not for me. Like, I don't know who I thought I was. This, I mean, it was like the scariest. So experience. that was the turning point. Was that, that the turning yeah, point? Yeah. That was the turning point where I basically was like, I am not this tough girl. Asia was forced to like this little light side was like kind of knocked back into reality. And it was like, what the hell have I been doing this whole time? And that was where I learned about um, the fire camp program. The fire camp program gives inmates with low security levels the opportunity to be trained and certified as wildland firefighters. So instead of doing the rest of her sentence in prison, Asia found herself in a different kind of intense environment. You literally get to put out fires. You get to do like all this kind of crazy manual labor, trail maintenance, um, emergency response, all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I basically, instead of going back into the mix and the drama and whatever, I threw myself into training for that program. And for about three and a half months, I trained physically, I trained in the classroom, and I eventually got certified as a wildland firefighter in prison. And this was what was so cool about fire camp was it was the first time that the two parts of me, this Asia light side wanting to connect, wanting to be a part of, wanting to do good in the world, and this Lila part of me, this I'm a badass, I'm tough, like I, you know, they ha- they were forced to work together because Asia was driven by okay, we're part of a crew, we're part of a team, we get to possibly save lives, but Asia could never have made it through the physical trainings without Lila's strength and tenacity. Isn't that interesting? So you were able to really kind of use it to your benefit, yeah. use Lila to your benefit, yeah. God, some of the days in our training, I'd be like, there is no freaking way I can do this. Like, I don't understand how they think I, I can do this. And it was like, if I wasn't in, in this exact setting, this this prison setting where I literally had to do it, it was like I wouldn't have. But then the feeling of actually doing it and looking back and being like, oh, my God, that it, and that feeling is like that feeling is so cool and so powerful. And that was the first time that I had to keep at something that I was not good at right away. Like I, the, the physical training, all that kind of stuff. I was one of the slowest in my crew when it came to running and hiking. I was, I mean, I was like, so not the best. I, it was something that did not come naturally to me. And as a kid, I would usually be able to talk my way out of, oh, guitar lessons were, were, they're just not for me. We're going to do something else. Oh, um, swim team. Oh yeah. It's just not for me. Like I never had to really stick with something. And that was the first time I was forced to stick with something that wasn't natural to me and 
I mean, that, that in and of itself was huge. It was the first time that I was not labeling one side as toxic, bad, wrong, and it was one side as a weak. It was like the two parts of me had to coexist and had to work together, and I think that it was the first time in my life that I connected to a sense of self-esteem and almost like an identity that I wanted to step into that was authentic. I mean, and this is something I still work in in my therapy. I literally will journal a dialogue sometimes between these two pieces of me. And in Judaism, it's called the Yetzirah, the Yetzirah Tov, the good inclination and the evil inclination. Um, and it's funny because they say, okay, the good inclination is good. The evil inclination is very good because there's this idea that that the Yetzirah, that dark side of us, is the side that fights for change, that fights for what we believe in. It's like the the survivor, the um, the one that isn't just fine with being comfortable, if that makes sense. So, so that's, at that point I had started writing to Beit Teshuvah again, basically saying, Mm -hmm. hi, please take me back. Hello, I need help, you know? Um, and I had to write back and forth with them for a few months. Um, they were a little hesitant to take me back because I mean, much to my surprise, they kind of saw through my facade last time. This, you know, oh, I know how to talk the talking group and nobody can tell me anything and I'm smarter than you. I mean, they saw right through all that. Um, but after a few months of writing back and forth, they basically said that they would give me another chance. So when I paroled in August of 2019, yeah, August of 2019, um, I came straight to Beit Teshuvah again. And what was that transition like going from prison to, you know, a group living home? I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot because... Um, as soon as I got out and still in the back of my head, I was not a hundred percent sure I was ready to let go of this criminal identity. Um, I didn't, and I don't even know if it was that I was, I don't even know if that it was that I was not able to let go of it. It's just, I didn't think that I would be able to succeed without it. I had already done so much damage. My brain was already so, I mean, I was already so far gone that I was literally starting from nothing. I got out with absolutely nothing, no money. My credit was messed up. I had all these, you know, all these things that um, had happened when I was both in custody and throughout um, my using that I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull myself out of this. Um, I remember I, I used to wear like three or four pairs of socks because all the shoes that I were given were a little too big for me for the first couple months. Um, and... Um, and it's really hard for me to ask for help. That's um, So that was hard too. I think one of the biggest parts of this dark side identity was like, I don't need you, you need me. And um, meanwhile, the, one of the things I was trying to run away from was, oh my God, I need help. And I feel vulnerable. So I was forced to sit in that for a while. And for the first couple months, everything looked good on paper, but I don't really think that there was that mental shift yet. It took a few months, but finally Asia felt authentically herself. Because I just started to see, oh my God, there's all, there are all these little ways that I'm still lying to myself, all these little, little ways that I'm still presenting myself to like, you know, whether it's my parents or therapists or whatever, like inaccurately, it's just, I had to learn how to learn who I was kind of from scratch. Um, And that's where the real mental shift happened. Today, Asia is studying to work with kids who are struggling the same way she did at Beit Teshuvah. She's taking medication that's working for her. All that time spent doing physical labor at fire camp taught her the benefits of exercise. She has learned not to hide what makes her unique. That same part of her that wanted to clean the dishes so well when she was younger has morphed into something she now accepts as just part of her charm. But not every day is easy. When she feels stuck in a rut, she comes back to this one phrase, 
Within the core wound lies the core gift. One of my core wounds is this feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm not special enough. Or again, it's like something's really wrong with me. But within that is my ability to, I think, not only see other people, make them feel valid, make them feel connected, make them feel a part of and good and just like connect to what they love about themselves. It's like that core struggle of mine is what really allows me to be so effective um, at work and just in my relationships. And so what is Lila Black doing today? Lila Black is, she's the one that gets me to put on my running shoes and go for a run every morning because that's what's ultimately going to put me in a good mood for the rest of the day. Lila Black is the one that can set boundaries with residents and the one that isn't as afraid of being liked that allows me to actually be effective at my job. Lila Black is the one that seeks new opportunities and and goes forth and takes risks and like wants challenges. And I mean, working out is really her playground. That's where I get to push myself to this like almost level of like pain and intensity and just like toughness that she loves. Um, But Lila Black is what's moving me along. Whereas this Asia part of me, this empathetic, connected, intuitive part that just lives in love, um, she would just, I think, kind of stay still if it wasn't for Lila. What sort of advice would you give someone today that's struggling with with similar issues based on, you know, everything that you've gone through and what you've learned on your journey? One of the most powerful things for me was always like this I I had to kind of really believe that everything was happening exactly as it should for whatever reason. And where is the lesson in this? Where is the gift in the wound? What can I do with this experience? I've always had this feeling like there was more that I was meant to do and that all this crazy stuff that I was going through was only going to help me connect to more people. What am I supposed to be learning from this and how can I eventually plan to connect with others or help others using this. Um, And then I would say just have somebody that you can talk to. And sometimes even just talking it out or even if it's something you have a lot of shame about or you feel really embarrassed or icky about whatever, it's just if you can have one person to just kind of talk to, um, that in and of itself can help a lot. You know, success is kind of, you know, could be a tricky thing. Um, you know, what, what is success looks different to one person than it does for another. How do you feel about success and and what success looks like? I would say right now, I might like, there have been times in my life before I was making more money. There have been times in my life where I had more nice things, but I have never felt so happy being authentically me and being able to show up as my whole self. And I, I, I think that success is just like learning how to engage in a relationship with who is authentically you and allowing that to kind of turn your life into exactly where it's supposed to be. Um, and I think I'm on, yeah, I'm on my way to doing that. And it's really, really cool. Getting Through is made possible with the support of USC Hillel through the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative. It is produced by Hannah Beal, Micah Smith, and me, Andrea Sonnenberg. Original music by Micah Smith. Thank you for listening.